Welcome to Counsel the Word, a podcast of the Center for Biblical Counseling and Discipleship. I'm your host, Keith Palmer, and today we're going to be talking about handling abuse cases in the local church. Abuse cases are some of the most challenging cases that a church will face. Our commitment to Jesus Christ and our mandate to care for people well require us to think carefully and wisely about handling cases like this. To help us to think through this essential topic, I'm very thankful to be with my friend, Dr. Jim Neuheiser. Jim is the director of the Christian Counseling Program and associate professor of counseling and practical theology at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. He is also involved with the Institute for Biblical Counseling and Discipleship, IBCD, and a pastor, a seasoned pastor of over 30 years. And uh, most importantly for today, I'm thankful that he is my friend and he can be here to have this conversation. So Jim, thank you for being here today. It's always a delight to get to be with you, Keith. So we're talking about cases of abuse. Uh, You and I are both uh, pastors, and so we want to think carefully and wisely about how we handle cases of abuse in the local church. So so start us off. What What are some things we need to be thinking about in terms of caring for people well in cases of abuse? Well, both in my work as a pastor in the local church, but also as a counseling center director and a professor where people are coming to me with their problems and churches are coming and describing what's going on, I've noticed some failures on the part of the church in caring well in cases of abuse. And there's actually kind of a pattern that I've seen repeated over and over again. And even at the conference here when I talked about this, I had several people say, yeah, it's like you were in our church when this happened because this is exactly what happened to us as well. And, and what's going on is that you'll have a marriage in which the husband is acting in an abusive way. It could be a level of physical violence. It could just be a matter of uh, coercion, control, uh, harshness, manipulation, financial restrictions, uh, keeping her from talking to certain people, even her relatives. And this has probably been going on for a very long time before leadership would ever become aware of it. And finally, it comes out somehow. It may even be that she confided in a friend or a pastor's wife, and, or maybe she goes for help, and the church finally gets involved, and maybe we should have caught signs of this earlier, but now it's become an issue. And the first mistake that churches will often make is when there's a case of abuse, instead of treating it as a case of abuse, they treat it as a typical marriage conflict. And a lot of my counseling is typical marriage conflicts where you've got a selfish husband and a selfish wife. You know, Genesis 3, when it says, your desire shall be for your husband and he will rule over you, uh, every marriage because of the fall is to some extent a battle for control where the wife is tempted and when it says her desire will be for her husband, her temptation is going to be to supplant him as the head, like it says of Cain that sin's desire is for you, sin wants to take you over, but then... The husband ruling over, I think, okay, he's going to use his superior strength, size, uh, forcefulness to smash her down instead of lead her properly. So that's most of the typical marriage problems we have is there's selfishness on both sides. And often we'll use things like the peacemaker and, you know, you get the log out of your eye and you get the log out of your eye and you forgive each other. And that's my bread and butter counseling. I do a lot of that. I love to do it. I love to see how the gospel helps people in that situation. But there are 
the situation of abuse is where there is a huge difference in power and control. In one party, it's usually the husband is being coercive. The wife is fearful. And the mistake that churches will make is they're, they're treating them as like equal parties in the dispute. And they don't distinguish what, between what I would say are her misdemeanor offenses of being disrespectful to him or talking back to him and his felonious offenses of extreme harshness, ridicule, even hurting her physically. And something we've talked a lot about in this conference is that cases of abuse, even in in counseling these cases, the person who is fearful or terrified of the other person probably is not going to fully disclose what's going on unless she feels safe doing so, which involves probably getting them separate rather than together in terms of giving her a situation where she's really free and safe to say what's really going on. And in that case, you think of Proverbs 25, 20 verse 5, where the plan of a man's heart is like a deep well and a, it's a person of understanding who draws it out. It may be hard to get out of her. And then likewise with him, uh, if you establish that he is a belligerent, angry, abusive man, probably he needs to be helped. And that's where Chris Moll's material and the heart of domestic abuse is so powerful in terms of helping an abuser to come to grips with his sin and to be reconciled to his wife. That the challenge at this stage is when the church tries to counsel them together, often the husband is more articulate and a better counselee than the wife who is fearful, quiet, and he will also be very skilled typically at bringing out her faults, which are real faults. He's not making stuff up. He's married to a sinner, and so he's got her for this and got her for that. And so, it, which kind of brings you to the next stage, is that for a long time, the church is treating it as this typical marriage counseling case, and they're a step behind to the whole process. And so once it, after a while, they begin to realize, you know, I think he's a bigger problem than just a typical marriage problem. And he is mistreating her and he is overly controlling. And, you know, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And the more you listen to him, the more you see the characteristics of an abuser. And I would recommend like Chris's book where he's got this list of things to watch out for. And so there is the church begins to recognize we've got to deal with this guy and they may start taking steps to address his sin more seriously they might even get to the point of threatening church discipline they might even offer her opportunity for some safety if she feels she or the children feel uh, threatened uh, the the negative on this is that her own heart is hurting and sometimes is becoming hardened towards her husband, that this probably should have happened sooner. It's good that they get it. And I think church leaders really have godly motivations. Uh, I think they, they want to protect marriage. They hate divorce. Uh, they want to hear all sides. But I think sometimes they're too slow on the uptake. And the, the next step of what really happens is that when the pressure comes on, Oftentimes, the husband, now realizing the consequences, maybe you know, he's highly accountable, maybe he's even had to be kicked out of the house for a while, he starts working the program. And again, they're often really good counselees. They're often very charming. And, and so two 
bad thing. So he's working the program and trying to impress the leadership with what a good boy he is and how he's going to do well now. Uh, meanwhile, another negative thing that often happens is the wife may find on the internet or through friends or relatives access to some women, some well-intentioned people who want to protect victims of abuse, but they're very anti-church and anti-men, and sometimes under the guise of Christianity, and they convince her that her husband is a monster who will never change and she needs to get rid of him, and that the church has failed to protect her, and there's some truth to both of those statements in terms of how sinful the husband has been and the church hasn't done well enough. And of course, they'll tell you, this is the way men are, this is the way churches are. So her heart is becoming hardened. Now again, in some cases, the husband keeps getting hardened too, and it's evident he's an abuser and they may wind up separated long-term. But if the husband appears to be repentant, kind of the, the last stage of this disaster movie I'm describing is, so the husband is working the program and he acts cooperative with the elders. Now, even then, I think if you examine the characteristics of true repentance over, is he really concerned for his wife or is he just want to get his rights back? But regardless, he, he seems to be the good counselee and the wife now may be fed up. Maybe she's been influenced by these other people. Maybe just she's gone on with this so long that she doesn't want to do it anymore. And sometimes what will happen is if she's the one who separates or divorces, that she comes under church discipline for breaking up the marriage when it may be that the husband was not really repentant. And uh, this pattern loosely described has been, uh, I hope not in my own church, but certainly I've seen with people who have come to me for questions uh, you know, have said, have described that very similar pattern. And I will say that in my experience going back 20, 30 years in pastoral ministry, I feel like in the past I too have sometimes been a step behind what I should have been doing in my zeal to protect the marriage and my general propensity to treat things equally. And I've learned a lot over the last several years. Well, that's both tragic and very helpful, too, to, to see that observation and see how churches are often, you know, as you said, one step behind and some pitfalls that we want to definitely avoid. So with that sort of pattern in mind, as can sometimes be typical in local churches that have the right heart, right? They, they're trying to honor the Lord. They're trying to honor the text. They're trying to care for people, but they're missing these things. How can churches improve? Uh, what could they do differently in terms of the errors that you've just described uh, what could they do to improve the care and avoid some of these things? I think that because abuse is so common in the churches and so often hidden, that there are a few things churches can do. One is they need to be on the lookout for this problem. It's not going to be, I mean, adultery jumps out at you. You don't have to go searching for that. Generally speaking, when it happens, they're rushing to you and you're in the middle of the mess. This is something where you sometimes you smell it long time before you see it, and to have the courage to ask some hard questions. I think that having a policy of erring on the side of safety, if an accusation is made and the woman or the children, sometimes it's the way around, it's the woman who's the violent one and the man who needs to get out. I've counseled in those cases. But you can keep someone safe without judging the other person to be fully guilty of all they're being accused of. And while you're figuring out what's going on, erring on the side of safety. I think that 
our teaching about biblical headship that is really from the pulpit and on the context of all the ministries, I think a lot of abusers have taken what the Bible teaches about the husband being the head and the wife submitting, and they've taken it to a gross and unbiblical distortion of what God has intended, uh, that Jesus himself described his, you know, all authority has been given to me, he says, he understands that, and in John 13, conscious of his authority, he uses his authority to wash his disciples' feet. Ephesians 5, when it describes husbands being the head in the marriage, it's to be an instrument of sanctification, love, and sacrifice for their wives. And when you see a man who's all into headship and patriarchy, and we're adamant as being complementarians in the church and in the home, but they, they take it way beyond Scripture, and they use that power not to serve but to control, and you know, be it financially, physically, relationally, uh, we see that smoke, I think we have some obligation to go in when Proverbs 31 talks about helping the weak. And in the Psalms, it talks about protecting the innocent who are being harmed and led away to destruction. And so I think just to realize as church leadership, it's going to happen. It probably is happening now. And when it does happen, we need to understand the lay of the land. We need to realize that abusers are sometimes the most charming and manipulative people on the face of the earth. And one way they manipulate is they use Bible verses uh, against you. And they also, they will counter-accuse the wife and they'll, and they'll be able to hit some good shots. And they will counter-accuse you as leadership. And they'll, they'll try to control you and the process. And after you've been through these things a few times, you begin to recognize that and hopefully learn to stand up to it. But the sooner you can do that, the better. What can churches do to better know the flock because you feel like a lot of this happens because there's sort of a superficial understanding of people in the church. And obviously that's going to look different in different sizes of churches and whatnot, but there, there are probably some ways that churches can have a stronger effort at knowing people, shepherding them, discipling them, so that this doesn't go on undetected Right. You know, any longer than necessary. So uh, what are some ways that churches can better know the flock and, and, and build a more un, uh, a deeper understanding of relationships where maybe we can see these things sooner rather than later? Good. I'd, I'd like to add something to the last answer that actually segues into this answer. Yeah. Is I think one thing we also need to teach the church is that those under authority have the right to confront those in authority with their sin and if necessary, to get help from the outside. One way abusers control is they say, I'm your husband, or it could be I'm your father, I'm your pastor, there's lots of abusers of authority, and therefore I forbid you from t telling anybody else what I'm doing, be it violence, pornography, drunkenness. Matthew 18, when it says, if you go to your brother, if he sins, and if he won't listen to you, it doesn't say, well, unless he's your husband or your pastor, in which case you have to stop. It still says, this is what you must do. And because I think many women who are being abused really want to please God, they want to be submissive, they're being overwhelmed with the, the forcefulness of the controlling arguments from the Bible, distortions of the Bible from the husband, I think they need to be well taught that if this is happening to you or somebody you know or love, it needs to be confronted, and that the Bible has a process by which it must be confronted that includes the involvement of leadership and potentially discipline. Now, in terms of how the church protects people, um, the Bible says in Hebrews 13, 17, that we as church leaders will give account to God 
for the flock entrusted to us. And you know, 1 Peter 5 and Acts 20, we're told by both Paul and Peter to shepherd the flock of God. And a shepherd knows his sheep. And you know, different people have actually done calculations in churches and denominations in terms of how many sheep can one shepherd effectively care for. And I think you could have a church of thousands of people where you have lots and lots of under-shepherds and you have some method of organization where they can know their sheep. And that could be through home visitation, as in some denominations. It could be through home groups where you have leaders who are in those situations who care for those people. And yeah, so there, I think there are different approaches that can be used. But the one thing you can't do is ignore it and fail to do it. And, and nor can you just expect for people to quickly come to you. I think the more you can publicly say, if you're in trouble of this kind, we want you to come, we want to help, and it shouldn't be tolerated, that, that might bring some uh, out of the uh, rafters or whatever. But what I've found, too, is that when you spend time with a couple, especially you and your wife, with some other man and his wife, and you go to dinner together, you have them over, you spend time with people, you learn what they're like. And actually, I will confess in my own life, uh, there have been situations where we would spend time with a couple, and in years past, as I saw the husband would interrupt his wife, he would belittle his wife, um, he was too sharp with her. I've had multiple occasions in the past where I did not say anything to my embarrassment, my shame even now, and that I thought, well, if that's what they're, you know, he's not hitting her, he's not yelling at her, he's generally kind to her, but I see, again, it's to me now, I'm, I'm seeing smoke here. And where this has really come back and grieved me is I've had cases where people I've known for literally decades, and then a point comes, and some of it may be under the less than ideal influence of Me Too and other kind of women's rights things, but the woman comes to the point where she actually properly understands, my husband has been treating me like a doormat, and this isn't what headship was supposed to be, this isn't what submission is supposed to be. And I realized I've been, I thought I was doing the right thing by submitting to his interruptions and belittling and harsh words and impatience and grumpiness all this time. And I now realize that's not normal, that's sinful. And I feel bad. I say, yeah, I kind of saw that too in my limited sphere. And I've, I believe now when I see that I need to be more proactive in going to the husband or my wife and I talking to them as a couple just saying, you know, I see these things, and, and I have done that more recently, where it's not, oh, this is clearly a case of abuse. But quite frankly, if a man treats his wife badly when a pastor or elder is having dinner with him, what are things like when you're not there? So those would be a couple things that have come to my mind. You know, I think there's probably some pastors that are going to listen to this, and because abuse is such a lightning rod issue, a lot of pastors, a lot of elder boards are fearful about engaging in a ministry where abuse is involved. You know, they, they want to honor God, they want to honor the text, they want to honor biblical roles, but they know there's this secular way of looking at it and the attention that that sometimes brings. So what wisdom would you offer to the fellow brother pastors who are fearful about engaging in ministry with their flock in this situation? I wrote a blog called The Abuse Pendulum, and it's just one way of illustrating where I think we tend to go from one extreme to the other. And, of course, each of us, you and I both think we're right in the perfect middle between the two bad extremes. 
which means we need to watch ourselves all the more. But I think that you're navigating the balance, and maybe the other example is like you're on a saddle on a hiking trail where it's 3,000 feet down on one side and 4,000 feet down on the other, and you're trying to not fall off either edge. And so I think in the past, churches, again, were fearful of interfering in a family and a man's leadership of his family. We're fearful of encouraging a woman to separate her divorce from her husband. We want to protect marriage. And I think those good concerns of not falling off the cliff on one side may have driven us off the other side and our failure to protect women who are being abused and our failure to be proactive in keeping people safe, even if it appeared in the short term to threaten that couple living together as married people should. And so that's that's one side of it. And... But then in reaction against that, now you've got another extreme, and this is some of the Me Too, and this is movement, and this is actually some of the, the anti-abuse crusaders who claim to be Christian, where they go to another extreme where you must always believe the woman, where the Bible says that you can't treat someone as guilty without proof, without evidence. And people do make up false accusations, and I in my counseling ministry have seen multiple examples of people making up false allegations of abuse. I'm not saying the majority are. I'm not saying we should assume anybody is. But you can't treat someone as guilty just because someone makes a claim against them. I think also another negative extreme would be the idea of being, well, if someone is at all abusive, then the one solution is divorce. Uh, When I wrote my book on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, critical questions and answers, I made an argument that a habitually and extremely abusive spouse could ultimately be considered to be abandoning the marriage by their unwillingness to allow the other person to live with the measure of safety. I expected people to become angry with me for opening the door a crack for divorce being possible in extreme cases of abuse. So far, I've not had any public rejection of that position. What I have experienced from, again, the other extreme is from the, the people who tend to, that divorce is the one bullet in their gun, is that if, if your husband ever treats you this way, then you're in an abusive situation and you need to get out. And, and they're angry with me because I said it was something as a last resort rather than almost a gut reaction every time this happens. And so... We, yeah, so we want to protect marriage. We want to protect victims. Uh, and there are going to be some cases, like even the case I was mentioning when I began, where a woman who feels unsafe is staying away from her husband or pursuing legal action against him. I think we have to move with extreme caution. There can be situations where you might be saying, you know, I don't think you have grounds. But I'm not sure enough that he's repentant and that you're safe, that I feel comfortable forcing you to go back into that home. Um, and so, you know, in 1 Corinthians 7, actually, there's a situation where Paul says, well, the woman should not divorce her, should not leave her husband. But if she does, she should remain single or be reconciled. I think some of these cases may fit into that category where, you know, I, I don't think that's what you need to be doing right now, but I'm not, I can't tell you. Now, you've known him a lot longer and better than I have, and it may be he's put us on. And it, you know, I would feel really, really terrible if you send a woman home and then three months later she's injured or dead. So 
we, we plead with God for wisdom, and I think there needs to be some humility. There are clear-cut cases where this woman needs to get away and be kept safe. There are also another extreme where false accusations are made or ordinary marital conflict. They try to make it into abuse where you've got both people saying some unkind words, and you know she wants to make it as if you know it's the worst possible case. So we want to avoid making a mistake on either side of the pendulum and plead with God that he would give us wisdom. I think this is where it helps to have a plurality of elders when you're having to make church decisions on these things rather than you being a lone ranger trying to figure that out. And as I said, there may be cases where you may be saying, we, we don't agree with you, but, but we're not going to compel you because we're not completely sure we're right. And a lot of what I plead for in those situations would be go someplace where you're safe, Make sure there's some agreement in place where you're being, your economic needs are being protected, and then see if God really changes in where you're convinced. And you're, you're, you're working for delay rather than saying, you must go back now or we're going to discipline you. I, I can almost see no situation in which I would be saying that these days. Yeah. Well, I think one of the tragedies of this sort of subject that we're talking about is there have probably been some legitimate victims of abuse where their cases have been mishandled in some way by the church, you know, probably under good intentions, under good, you know, pastors, elders that were trying to care, but for one reason or another failed in that care. What would you say to that, that victim that's listening to this that feels like their church mishandled their situation? What, what hope or encouragement would you offer to them? Well, my wife and I actually have had a case or two where a woman came and it seemed to be a case where the church was a couple steps behind, where this husband was clearly being abusive in various ways, and they were trying to treat it as kind of an equal conflict, a marital conflict. And we sent her back. We actually, she actually convinced the pastoral leadership to read Chris Mole's book, and maybe to listen to some audios on IBCD. And by the grace of God, they seem to have caught up now, where they're helping her to walk through this. Uh, this person is also a heroic woman in my mind because she's not pushing. She wants this marriage to work, but she also realizes that she has the right before God. If Paul's allowed to escape to the wall of a city, that if she believes she and her children are physically unsafe, she has the, the right and the freedom to be kept physically safe and even safe from overwhelming emotional abuse. And so she has a, a wonderful balance of, I'm, I'm going to protect myself and my children but I'm still going to fight with all my heart to save my marriage. And now her leadership, I think, is caught up to that and is helping her in it. So I think exposing them to this podcast and uh, encourage them to seek counsel maybe from those like you who have been through this before and could help them to think these things through. I've had the reason, a lot of the way I've come up with this is helping churches walk through it where I saw the same thing happening again and again. And so it, it, could help to get counsel from others who have been through it. One other thing I wanted to bring up, just to reemphasize as well, that I think is something false in the anti-abuse, I mean, we're all anti-abuse, but the people who, in their process of becoming anti-abuse, become anti-church and anti-men, is that God is able to change people. And that's the thing I've appreciated about Chris Moll's ministry. He is really tough on abusers. He's very strict in his definition of abuse. He has a ministry of trying to come alongside almost always men 
And if in 1 Corinthians 6, you know, it talks about all the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God and homosexuals and adulterers and drunkards, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were cleansed. As whoever's in Christ is truly a new creation and God can turn angry abusers into servants and Christ-like lovers in the context of marriage. And, and it's, it's a great work of God, but it's a work God is able to do. And so that is part of our hope as we look at this whole situation. Thank you for listening to Counsel the Word. For more information about Jim Neuheiser, you can visit the uh, Institute for Biblical Counseling and Discipleship website at ibcd.org and also the Reformed Theological Seminary website at rts.edu. And for more information about the Center for Biblical Counseling and Discipleship, CBCD, you can visit our website at thecbcd.org.